Welcome to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. This is episode number 24, where Jeff talks to Tim Drake from Flat Creek Estate. This episode is part one of a two-part podcast with Tim. Watch for part two coming soon. During this episode, Tim mentions a previous podcast in which we had multiple people in the Texas wine industry taste Dr. Roy Mitchell's Crema del Sol Sherry. You can find this episode on the Texas Wine Lover website by simply going to txwinelover.com slash 021. All podcast episodes can be found, including this one, by adding the three-digit number of the podcast episode to txwinelover.com. So, for example, this episode can be found at txwinelover.com slash 024. Enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Jeff Cope, and if this is your first time listening to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thanks for coming back. Today I'm talking to Tim Drake, winemaker from Flat Creek Estate. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Absolutely, Jeff. I'm excited to finally be able to sit down with you and go over some stuff. Yeah, it's been months in making here, but we finally made it. It has, it has. We've we've had some wine together a couple times talking about this, so I'm excited to finally get you out here. All right. Well, first, can you tell us, uh, for those who don't know you, maybe a little bit about your background? Um, so currently I'm, I'm here, I'm the, the head winemaker at, uh, Flat Creek. Um, I guess the head second tertiary winemaker. Um, and, uh, I took over here in 2011. Prior to that, I was making wine up in Washington state, um, doing a whole lot of Bordeaux wines, Syrah and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of high end kind of stuff, but, um, Eventually, I just wanted to move away from the weather we had last week, just that kind of dreary, rainy weather all all through the year. And we came on down here, and I tell you what, I have no urge to ever go back. It's so much more interesting, the wines that we're doing here, and uh, the people I just love, love being down here, so... Oh, excellent. So, uh, when you came here, were there any, like, wines or styles that changed when you came here? Um... When we first showed up, so we first showed up in 2010 and we moved down here, uh, without knowing anybody. We had only tasted a couple of wines, uh, which were not necessarily all that impressive. And, uh, so we came down here and I started just going around knocking on doors and we ended up, uh, starting Texas Wine Lab because there wasn't a whole lot of testing services available here. And, uh, that was one of the things I felt that would have that I could contribute to the wine industry as a whole was giving us something and, and helping people um, really approach much more, I guess, scientifically the, the wines they were doing and being able to monitor what was going on with them, getting that, that information to them. And, and so over the course of the past five years, we have seen immense, immense change in the wines. And I'm not saying it's, it's because I is here testing things. Um, but there's been a, a complete change in, uh, the type of person who's going into this. It's not so much a side business or a tourist business. Now you have people that actually really care about the wines and want to make wines that are, um, that compete on a world stage. And so you're getting thoughtful, uh, winemakers, you're getting professional winemakers people who have trained and have, have been brought in um, it, 
some of the, the fabulous winemakers out there, like Sergio at Fall Creek is wonderful. John Leahy at Becker is amazing. Um, but there's, there's real professional winemakers, uh, here now. And we're seeing a big push in quality of the Texas wines, which is, is much more important than quantity or anything else is, is if somebody picks up a bottle of, of Texas wine and they, they need to have a good experience with it because otherwise they're going to judge everything else. And, you know, and, and so a, a bad Texas wine hurts all Texas wineries, even if it happens to come from a winery that's just in it for the tourism. So, so, um, it's really exciting to be here at this time in, in Texas and, and being able to take part in, uh, where the industry is just going into the future. It's, it's extremely exciting and Great. tons of fun, actually. The people are lovely. So I, I agree completely. You know, after like four or five years of doing this thing, mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. definitely the people are amazing and so friendly. Yeah. It's an Absolutely. industry I want to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you're here. We had a good time. I, I like that sherry tasting we did the other oh, day. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> that, that was kind of fun. So, That's yeah, really good. <laughs> if, you, if you didn't catch that sherry podcast, you know, check back a couple episodes and you'll see that one. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I'll taste that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so today we're actually standing at Flat Creek Estate and we're in the mm-hmm. tank room. And did you have something that we were going to taste? Well, I, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to look at, uh, Viognier is a variety that is, um, is being recognized as, uh, a white wine variety that does very well in Texas. So, uh, and the approach, uh, I take is one that playing around with and experimenting is a couple of different, uh, techniques and different ways. I love to tinker with wines. Um, I thought we'd go ahead and, and try um, and experience what the different approaches will bring to a Viognier. Um, so this uh, first sample here that we're, we're going to taste, this is all tank fermented, is uh, all stainless steel, stainless steel aged, still a little bit on the lees. We're just starting to go ahead and, and clarify it. It's settling out. We're going to bottle this here uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and then, uh, or excuse me, we're going to bottle this here in a couple of months. And so then after we, we try this tank sample, then I want to go ahead and take a look at what, uh, fermenting and aging in oak barrels does, um, between used oak barrels, um, and actually new oak barrels. Um, I have a very interesting barrel for us to taste. It's Russian oak. So Ooh, it's a, I'm very excited. We can talk all about oak. <laughs> I can talk about oak for hours. So I hope your podcast is long enough. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can make it long for you. That's no problem. <laughs> um, so as you taste this one here, and I guess we'll go right into it. Um, it's got really, um, from a tank, it's very clean. It's got that look, that floralness that you typically get from a Viognier a little bit. And, um, it does have just a touch of the citrus. Uh, but what I find, um, yeah, excuse the slurping noises, um, is it's, it's lean. It's, you really pick up on the acid in there. Um, it doesn't have an extreme amount of mouthfeel through the mid palate. And what we'll see as we move to the barrels is, is how that changes. I'm very much a textural winemaker. Um, I don't worry about the flavors too much. 
That's Mother's Nature's job. <laughs> and it's different for every person who tries it. But the one thing I can control is the texture in your mouth. Mm-hmm. I can control the way the tannins, the acid, the mouthfeel, the finish and everything. So that's the only thing I really think about when I'm making wine. And I let the details work itself out on their own. Well, this one tastes good. There's no doubt about that. This one's not bad. Yeah. It's not my favorite. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I, 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 I'm, I'm just not a fan of a, a pure stainless steel Viognier. Oh, well, you're, you're not the only one because Glory doesn't like Viognier either. So That's all right. I might find a barrel for her. Oh, this might be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Should we go and wander? Sure. Okay. So now uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're in the, the uh, uh, barrel room here. We're going to go ahead and try uh, some Viognier that is the same Viognier, which is from Diamante Doble, uh, Jet Wilmis Vineyard up in the High Plains. Um, and it's the same juice that we, we had out of tank, but now we're going to go ahead and have it out barrel. And this first one we're going to try, this, is just gonna, this will give us um, the closest comparison with the tank. It's out of a neutral barrel. It's a barrel that's uh, been in use since 2006. So it has no oak flavor. So what we should see there is really the textural impact of fermenting in a barrel. So you get the actual flavor of the grape. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. So the, the first thing that you can notice, and one of the things that a barrel does is besides... Uh, the byproduct of providing an oak flavor to it, a barrel does so much more to a wine than it does just providing that flavor. Um, And one of the things is it clarifies the wine. And it's just the shape of a barrel and the way it interacts with the wine and the way it breathes. Uh, This wine is much more clear than the one that came out of tank. And when you taste that, all of a sudden... It has a, it's a warmer feeling to me, is, is how I describe it. I try to make wines that are warm. And it's just kind of bigger across the mid-palate. It's got a little more depth, a little more um, uh, viscosity to it. And that's just, the, the oak, unlike stainless steel, of course, breathes. And so during the fermentation process, you get a little bit of oxygen in there. And that interacts with the, the tannins that are present. Viognier is one of the few white wines that actually has tannins to it, which is why it's, it's um, sometimes considered to be that white wine for a red wine drinker, oh. is because it does have some tannin in there. You can feel that little bit of drying in there. Um, and you got to try and balance that out with the acid, you know, which is what makes you salivate. Um, and this has... It's much bigger um, across the across the mid palate. You can feel it from side to side. Um, so then, as we go to a new oak barrel, which I use only a little bit uh, out of, it'll probably be about five percent of the final blend that we put together is going to be actual new oak. All right. So this particular barrel, this is actually Russian oak, and the Cooper happened to come out here uh, this past year, and we must have spent four to six hours, just me and the Cooper, uh, tasting different wines and actually um, talking about the effects the barrels have on the wines. And so he has actually gone and 
did custom toasting on all the barrels that, that I got from him specific to the wines that I'm going to put it on. Um, so this one here, it has a little lighter toast. I wanted to bring out just a little bit of woody notes in there. I didn't want a lot of vanilla, so which you often get like in a Chardonnay, you'll get a lot of vanilla and stuff. Um, so let's see. I gotta actually see. It's been a while since I don't, I don't taste them all. Doesn't that taste good, right? Yeah. I, I like it when the boss actually makes a lot of little yeah. yummy noises. Yeah, it's a, it's a good so thing. The, so the boss is, re- boss is referring to is Rick Neighbors joining us here. Oak, in general, is relatively the same oak. It's just grown in different places. Um, American oak is a different species from the European, you know, French and everything oak. But uh, the biggest difference that you find, uh, I think, comes from how it, how it grows. So American oak, uh, they usually harvest the trees at about the same size, whether it's here in Kentucky or Pennsylvania or in, in uh, the Fontainebleau Forest or in, in Hungary. Uh, they're, they're harvested about the same size. Um, American oak tends to be 75 to 85 years old when it's harvested. Whereas then you go to French oak and it's about 150 years old. So the grain's a little tighter. You get a little different flavor profile through that. Then you go to uh, Hungarian oak and that tends to be about 250 years old uh, when it's harvested. And it's, it's just a little colder, a little more rocky, more in the mountains. For the Hungarian oak, it brings out more of the spicy notes, whereas French oak will give you vanilla. American oak gives you coconut, maybe a little dill if it's out of Kentucky or Missouri. Um, and then you go to the Russian oak, and the forest is, the cooper actually owns this forest. They're at 10th generation, they've been growing trees. The wood for these um, are from trees that are about 350 years old or so. So, I mean, it's extremely tight grain. And so it just gives off its flavor very subtly. And so it doesn't overpower it. And so I, I, uh, the biggest thing I like for this oak is the Viognier, because Viognier likes to suck up oak flavor. And uh, also Syrah is another variety that sucks up that flavor. So um, I'm playing around with, with where this fits in. Uh, Russian oak is hard to come by. There's very few people who can get it. So uh, I feel fortunate we're one of them. Well, it sounds good to me, and yeah, actually, would, you, would you mind to actually bottling a couple of these good. for me? <laughs> I, well, and that's the thing we're going to do. This will be the first year that that um, we're going to do a, a regular Viognier that we put out for that. That'll be distribution and everything, and then we're probably going to do about hundred cases of a reserve. And uh, I don't know if the Russian oak is actually going to make it into the regular Viognier, but it's definitely part of the reserve program. Excellent, excellent. Hmm. <laughs> I kind of want more of that. <laughs> that that, <laughs> that is good. There is no doubt about that. Yeah. You made a believer out of me, buddy. <laughs> okay, so we tasted some Russian uh, barrel Viognier, and now we're going to taste Tasted do... the neutral uh, barrel fermented, and then we've also tasted the tank fermented. And so we've seen in uh, tank fermentation, you get an austere wine. You know, it doesn't have a lot of mid-palate to it. Then you move to the barrel, you're starting to build the mid-palate. And uh, with, the, with the neutral oak, you went ahead and you, you just had a structure effect. As we went to the, the Russian oak, 
we had this little subtle wood. Some tannins are being brought in there. We're starting to get uh, definitely like some clean oak flavors. Uh, this next one we're going to try is actually an American oak, which um, is American oak is typically uh, associated with, with coconut flavors. Um, if you come out of Missouri or Kentucky or, or something like that, it's going to give you uh, some dill weed in there. Tropical areas. You, you can say tropical all you want. It, to me, it's dill weed. Um, I'm not <laughs> coconut a fan. Coconut is tropical. Well, coconut is. Um, uh, a silver oak is something that's pure Kentucky oak. Um, I don't care for silver oak. Uh, so we get our American oak barrels. Um, the cooper I deal with, uh, they allow me to vineyard designate very specific areas because they control everywhere from the forest all the way to the barrel. And so... Um, this one is from the small region in Pennsylvania, uh, which I find doesn't give me any of the dill and it's more of like a toasted coconut. So we'll go ahead and pull out of there get you a good sound bite. <laughs> or we'll just pour it over the floor. Um, there you go. So this is, there you, there's your glass. You can't have none. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, so, <laughs> that was nice for you to pour me a little bit. Well, you know, that's how I like you. Before um, I forget that one. Um, so as you taste this one, it has much more of that vanilla. It's almost a, uh, it's a heaviness that comes to it. Um, as opposed to uh, either the neutral, which doesn't give you uh, really oak flavors, um, and the, the Russian, which gives you kind of this clean wood flavor in there. Uh, this one gives you this, this heaviness that's in, that's in there, and that's that vanilla, that coconut, and whatnot. It's, uh, we can hit all sorts of chemical names that no one will know, except to other wine geeks. Um, <laughs> Well, we and and I don't necessarily trust myself to try and pronounce. Uh, my Latin's a bit uh, rough. So, well, we have a lot of wine geeks to listen to podcasts. I think so we're okay. But this one, this one, it's nice, and this is where I've taken in the past where I've taken our oak program. Uh, but but I'm moving straight Russian oak from here on out. I just like the cleanness uh, of that particular one. Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, out of what we tasted so far as the Viognier, the Russian oak uh, was definitely very yeah. good. Yeah, and you know, that, that's the one thing that uh, part of my love-hate relationship with Viognier is, um, uh, especially in Texas, you know, we made a lot of really nice Viogniers in, in Washington. Uh, we did a lot of really nice Rhones, very cool climate, you know, Syrahs and Viogniers. And the one thing you find with Texas Viognier is it has this this length of finish, like a Washington Viognier or any West Coast Viognier, um, I find uh, just cuts off short. And you get that a little bit from Virginia and whatnot, the finish is really short. Um, in Texas, we have this extreme length to the finish, uh, but we tend to get a lot of floral notes, and uh, I don't always care to drink grandma's perfume, so I, I try to downplay the floral notes and bring out some citrus and structure and stuff like that. Uh, again, there's very little I can do to affect the flavor, but I can affect mouthfeel and finish and texture. Um, and, and so fermenting in the barrel uh, really kind of downplays those floral notes in there. 
So I think uh, eventually when we go ahead and we blend a little bit of the stainless steel with the, with the, the oak um, fermented stuff, we're going to get a nice balance between it. And, and again, we're going to do two tiers. We're going to do one that is appeals more to the masses, and then we'll do a wine geek one. I love making wine geek wines. <laughs> um, we've taken our labels very much to a, a wine geek level. Um, we've decided to go ahead and cut off the flowery, oh, I taste bacon and blueberries and brambles and because those flavors are very individualistic so instead we're cutting it to uh we're taking the labels just to how it was fermented how it was aged and how much was produced just give you kind of just some some data and leave it at that and let, let everybody else go ahead and discover the wine on their own and form their own opinions because wine is very individualistic you know, the, what I taste is very different from what you taste, is very different from what uh, uh, a millennial taste or uh, somebody who's 70 will taste and stuff. So, so uh, I, I feel that trying to guide somebody with ideas of what that taste is, is too heavy handed. So we're just going to give just the facts, man. Just the facts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've tasted uh, multiple... Vignette samples yep. from a tank and multiple barrels. Yep. Are they all from the same vineyard? It's all the same vineyard. It's, it's all uh, Jet Wilmus fruit, again, Diamante Doble in Tokyo, Texas. Um, it has broken down bus at a little stop, uh, uh, crossroads in the middle of, uh, between uh, Brownfield and Plains. Um, and then uh, you hang a left and drive through some sunflower fields and, and wheat fields and cotton fields. And all of a sudden there's this giant vineyard and uh jet Wilmoth, I tell you what, he, that guy knows how to grow some grapes. And I like it that, uh, he's he, all the growers that we work with. I work closely with them and how they grow it and what our crop yields are and stuff. And so the Viognier in particular, this next year, uh, we have three acres of it out there and and which is about 26 rows and we're going to play around with different trellis techniques different crop yields and stuff this year and and he's open to that because our goal is to figure out really what texas can do you know we have this idea of what we can do from basically california you know all the textbooks are written about california sonoma san joaquin valley um and, and texas is so different you know, the crop yields you talk about for quality in California are entirely different here. And, and so we need to actually figure out what they are. And, and so all the growers that we work with, uh, him, Andy Timmons, is, is a wonderful uh, lost draw. Uh, absolute, some of the, one of the best growers in the state. Um, Neil Newsom, who was hanging out here yesterday. Another fabulous grower. All the growers we work with, we work real close with. It's something that we can we can definitely go ahead and and we're working to improve what we get for us, but also we talk to the other wineries and let the other growers know, and we share it all. And you know, we've been making the human race has been making wine for uh, let's say I think we're up to sixteen thousand years is the oldest evidence of winemaking. Um, nothing we do is really innovative or unique. It's just how we approach it. So, very good. So we've tasted out of uh, some Russian barrels, we American, and I, I see some big barrels here. I mean, what are those? So 
one of the things, uh, the approaches that you do is uh, the geometry of the barrel. So we have these puncheons, and puncheons are twice the size of what you think of as a regular barrel. And they, they really were kind of the standard up until about the 50s. Um, and in the 50s is when we actually got to the smaller size barrels. Uh, but but puncheons will go ahead, and, and what's nice about them is, one, the wine ages differently. So if you look at a lot of the wines we, we now really have coming out on our Black Label series and everything, we're just now bottling 2012s. I mean, we're, we're letting wine sit in barrel for like three years or so and really getting extended aging in there, which, um, again, affects the wine texturally. And one key to that, to not ending up with a wine that's oxidized, starts to take on port flavors and nuttiness and still having the fruit in there, is by using puncheons, the bigger barrels. And they, uh, they affect the, the rate of oxygen transfer in there, uh, the way the oak interacts with the wine, the way the lees, the spent yeast on the bottom interacts with the wine. And uh, my boys hate it, uh, but, but I do a lot of barrel fermentation, um, which we take these, these big barrels and we pop the head out, the flat side of the barrel, and we set it up on end and we use it like an open top tank. So we'll be able to fit about, oh, 500 pounds of fruit in there, and we'll punch them down. And the boys hate it because at the end of the day, you can scoop a tank out and you can pump the stuff into the press. But with the barrels, they dig in there and you just have this, this barrel sitting there with a couple of feet hanging out the top as they try to dig the last of the grapes out of the bottom. Yeah, they're, they're not big fans of that, but uh, I am with the, the way the, the wine results from them. Uh, so we do a, a lot of, of punch-ins, and as time goes on, just because they are different geometry and different size of, of barrel, uh, eventually I'd like to get to where we're about 50-50 with, with uh, the punch-ins and the regular barriques. But I'm a firm believer of extended barrel aging with, with Texas wines. You know, we, we have delicate fruits, and that, that deals with the, the high temperatures that we have. And really, especially in the hill country, the lack of cool nights. And, and so you need more time in barrel to resolve these things and to really create a wine that has structure and that you can get longevity with. So, And that's one thing that, that we're all about. We, we don't just want to make a grocery store wine. We want a wine that, that people can go ahead and come here from, from France and come here from uh my favorite is the guy from Sweden who comes in. He's like, oh, I love your wine. And he's like, ship it to me. And I'm like, I can't. Um, but, um, and and I, I love when I have people who come in and they're like, oh, I only drink Napa Valley cabs. And then we actually convert them to like, oh, really? A Sangiovese? Oh, this is a Montepulciano. This is wonderful. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Let's break you away from everything. But... Um, so, so that's kind of our mission here. You know, Flat Creek's been around a long time, and we're kind of viewed as a, a big boy on the block because of our longevity, but, but we're still a very small winery. You know, we're only making eight to 10,000 cases a year, which is much smaller than a lot of the, the new guys, especially who are on 290. So we're seen as being a big boy, but we're still very much 
handcrafted. We know every single barrel and everything that, that's done in there, and there's a lot of attention to detail on that. So, This is the end of Part 1 with Tim Drake. As mentioned earlier, Part 2 will be coming out very soon, so watch your podcast program, or better yet, subscribe with your email at the Texas Wine Lover website. Thanks for listening to the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. If you would like to read the show notes and see the photos included in a larger size, check out the blog post at texaswinelover.com. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TXWineLover. Plus, we are also on Twitter. Please subscribe to the podcast either on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Join us next time for another episode of the Texas Wine Lover Podcast. Thank you.